Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There are very few comedians who do awkward confusion better than my guest on today's show. Okay, so how are you getting on with the De Niro thing? What's that? Uh, I, I, I told you. It, Jonathan Ross told me he's over here doing a film. You said you'd get me an audition. You said you'd make a few no, phone calls. Yeah, no, no, I've been, I've been looking into that, but it's, it's tricky because all these people are in Los Angeles and... So, you've got a phone? Yeah, it's complicated though because, you know, it took me two days to realise they're eight hours ahead. They're behind, are they? Yeah. Yes. That explains quite a lot. So what time would it be over there now? Right, it's four o'clock here. So, eight hours. Five, six. Now you're going up. Five, six. You're still going up. No, that's down. If, look. No, it's four o'clock here, so eight hours, eight o'clock. That's four hours ahead. In the morning. Oh, OK, yes. Supposing they get in at nine. Ten, yeah, have a cup of coffee, say hello to people and... Yeah. Right. Add eight. To what? Ten. Ten, eighteen. What do you mean, eighteen? Oh, add, no, add eight hours, you course. mean. Yes, yeah, sorry. Add, so uh, call them at six o'clock. Right, their time. Our time. Our time. Yeah, and what time would it be over there? Ten. At night? In the morning. In the morning. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was the great Stephen Merchant doing what he does best in extras opposite his longtime comedy partner, Ricky Gervais. If Stephen had done nothing else besides co-creating the original British version of The Office, he would still be worth having on this show. Of course, he has done so much more than that in the 21 years since that iconic and highly influential mockumentary show premiered on the BBC. After co-creating and co-starring in Extras with Ricky Gervais, Stephen set out on his own to create and star in the hilarious and underappreciated Hello Ladies, and then made his directorial debut with 2019's Fighting With My Family, starring The Rock. Now, Stephen has taken on what might be his most ambitious project yet. The Outlaws is a sort of crime thriller series for the BBC and Amazon that he created with director and former prison inmate Elgin James, and co-stars in with, among others, Christopher Walken. So, as you can tell, we had a ton to talk about, and I'm so glad he was able to join me from across the pond for this episode. Here's me with Stephen Merchant. Ask Siri for amusing answers to questions. Uh, <laughs> I'm just putting on the... Oh, the do not disturb. I've got it on. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, great. All right, off we go. Sorry. Great. Well, welcome. Thanks for doing this. Um, I, I did some research before uh, this interview, and I, I think you are officially our tallest guest ever on the podcast, and we've done now more than 150 episodes, so I hope you feel good about that. I'm very pleased. I don't know who your previous um, recipients of that award were, uh, whether you've ever had Vince Vaughn on. No Vince Vaughn, but we've had, these are all the people we've had in the 6'4 to 6'6 range. Uh, John Cleese, who I know is a a hero of yours. Yes, indeed. Uh, Kevin Nealon. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Uh, Pete Holmes, who has you close, and uh, Gary Gullman are all all pretty tall. Um, But none of them get to the 6'7"? 
None of them get to six foot seven. They're all in the uh, six four to six six, I believe. And then the only person I found taller than you in the comedy world is uh, Brad Garrett, who's six eight. But I haven't talked to him yet. Damn it, Garrett! I thought I was yeah. going to take the title. <laughs> but uh, well, on, on, this po- on this podcast, you take the title, but uh, but he's still he's still out there to beat you. There's a couple of tall comedians here in the UK. There's a guy called Greg Davis, who I believe is also 6'8", who just tips me, which which makes me angry every time you know I, I see his face. Yeah. The other one I thought of was uh, uh, Blake Griffin, the basketball player, is also dabbled in comedy. So he, he could <laughs> count sure as that a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and as a, as a short person myself, I'm glad that we're doing this on Zoom and not in person because it's a little less intimida- intimidating for me. But <laughs> Well, I, uh, I, 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 don't, I try not to lord it over people when I'm with yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm so excited to talk to you, and I want to start with this new show, The Outlaws, which I just got to watch the uh, the entire uh, series, the six episodes, and really, really enjoyed it, and found it, you know, somewhat surprising uh, coming from you. Um, it's very funny, but it's also um, very much a uh, drama, even a thriller uh, at times, and um, and really compelling. So let's just, uh, you know, starting there. How did this uh, show come to be? Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I also, um, I, 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 I'm in a sense pleased that you've acknowledged that the sort of it surprised you in some ways because I think that was part of the intention was that um, the idea was that perhaps you, you sort of started expecting a comedy and that sort of um, like the frog being you know boiled slowly in a pan of water, you don't realise that sort of things have, have <laughs> heated up until you're sort of midway through the show and you realise, like you say, that there is some, there's a thriller side to it and, and hopefully there are some, some dramatic uh, stakes and also some sort of emotional investment in the characters and so on. And, um, and I think that's sort of partly because that's the sort of thing I like watching. And I think all of the things I've been involved with in the past, right back to when we did the, the British version of The Office, was that there was always a, there was always a, a, a sort of whiff of drama of, of, of you know, the human stories there uh, that, that we weren't always just chasing the laugh that if a scene needed to end without a laugh or with a, a beat of emotion or with an awkwardness or whatever it might be that, that we were we were sort of happy to go there and that's something that I've tried to continue through my career is is not feel the sort of um the burden of the punchline always and I know that can sometimes sound like sort of just lazy comedy writing but I think <laughs> to me it's just it's just sort of not feeling that that you have to chase that at every moment and that you can you can just let scenes unravel and, and do different jobs uh, at different times and the audiences are sort of sophisticated enough that that if they're if they're there for humor some more will come along eventually and so like I say it's sort of always been something that sort of I've been a fan of but I think what I haven't done before is is an hour-long tv show and also something which has which dabbles with genre as you as you mentioned in this case the sort of thrillery uh, element and that's again just something that I'm a big fan of and I and it's something I love watching it's it's a thing I'm, I'm a fan of in movies and and in tv shows and it's sort of my go-to if I'm looking for some sort of enjoyable Wednesday night entertainment and so I just sort of fancy the idea of being of being in that realm as well uh and you know ended up pairing up with this excellent writer called Elgin James who um, is also a co-creator of a show called Mayans MC and Elgin and I on the surface don't seem like you know obvious kind of writing buddies he has a much more crazy and and sort of exciting life than me or has had <laughs> um and yet you know we hit it off when we met and we and we seem to have a lot of uh, similar tastes and and sort of common ground and a similar sense of humor and and so he brought you know i think a, a, a certain grittiness and a certain kind of authenticity about the sort of the, the the tougher side of life 
and uh, and I was able to still put in a few dick jokes. <laughs> yeah. So the the show uh, focuses on this group of people who are kind of come together doing uh, community service work after being arrested for various reasons, and we kind of learn why they were all arrested over the course of the time. Um, yeah, your partner uh, Elgin James on the show did actually spend some time in prison. Is that part of what uh, you know made you want to work with him on this uh, particular subject matter? Well, he yes, he was in gangs in, in his early life, and then as you, as you say, did subsequently do some some, some prison time. Um, although that's that's long past him now. But um, I didn't know that when I met him. I, I simply said to my agents, I simply said, "Is there someone?" I said from sort of from the other side of the tracks. I think it was the phrase I used. Who could kind of you could introduce me to? So I didn't. I didn't do any sort of due diligence on him. Really, I just kind of met him for a coffee and, and hit it off. And all of that stuff, I just discovered later. Really, once we started collaborating, but it ended up feeding into the show and feeding into the sensibilities and um, and our approach to it. Yeah, but um, but it's interesting, you know, because again, in all in all of the sort of partnerships I've had now, in the different creative partnerships I've had, the thing which you always seem to start with is just is just talking about things you like and dislike, movies you like, music you like, you know, people you like and dislike. And I think that finding those sort of common grounds is what it's what makes you feel instinctively like you can you can work with this person because there's a shared sensibility. And again, despite Elgin's very different background, I've done I've done very little prison time. Yes, if I'm honest. Yes. Um, but despite <laughs> that, um, yeah, like I say, we we hit it off um, enormously. Yeah, um, your character on the show, um, I would say, starts off pretty pretty unlikable, um, especially when you you find out, you know, sort of why he was arrested and and just the way he comes into the this world. A bit nervous. This is my first time. Not sexually. I mean, with a prostitute, with, with a lady of ill repute. You got the money, love. The money. Oh yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I find the evening's quite lonely since my wife left, if you're wondering why. Hurry up, love. I'd just quite like to get back from match of the day. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. So what happens now? Is you... Oh, straight to it. Was your business affected much by coronavirus? Must be quite hard to do this when you're wearing a face mask. Is that a fun thing for you to do is to sort of start start low and try to sort of dig yourself out of that hole and and make him you know make us love him by the by the end of the the series well I think one of the uh, when, when Elgin and I were first talking about this idea um, and it originated because my parents here in in the UK when I was growing up did actually supervise people doing community service they were oh, in really? charge of them and they and they would uh, you know make sure that they, they they had to sort of you know paint the fence or pick up the garbage or whatever they were assigned to do and so I always thought even from a young uh, young age that it seemed like an interesting area for something because you know they would tell me about these real life people that they dealt with and they were always from such disparate walks of life that um you just you wouldn't find that group of people sort of anywhere else you know the, the sort of the the businessman who'd got caught drink driving and the the kid from the wrong side of the tracks who'd been doing a bit of pot dealing and you know someone who'd uh, you know who'd, who'd um broken some kind of curfew or whatever it was and so you'd have all these unlikely people of different ages and different ethnicities and different backgrounds forced literally to work together and that seemed like a kind of rich a sort of uh, precinct if you like for a comedy or a drama or something definitely yeah um but so as Elgin and I were talking about it we were also very much aware that we were writing as Trump was coming into power and here in the UK Brexit was on everyone's mind and the country both our countries felt very divided sort of politically and socially and we I think are quite optimistic people and we felt like the thing 
that we were lacking was this sort of was it was was a sort of common ground was a kind of that people recognizing each other's common humanity that everyone started to sort of you know pigeonhole other people well like they're 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 pro brexit and I'm not so I hate them all and we thought well that can't be right because my dad's pro brexit and I don't hate my dad so there must be something that could unite these people and so part of the idea for the show was to take what are on the surface um archetypes the, the, the extreme right winger, the extreme left winger, or whatever it may be, and some of whom you probably disagree with politically, some of whom you may not like initially when you first meet them on screen. And, it, and our job, in a, in a sense, was to see, could we peel back the layers enough that over time you might start to empathise with them or root for them or even just, I don't know, see their side of the story? And that seemed like an interesting challenge that we were trying not to preach to the choir we we sort of felt like we wanted a character for everybody to like and everyone to and also to dislike um yeah so that was yeah. so, so similarly with my character as well um and then of course you have christopher walken in the show which is a, a huge get um and uh is he's so great in the show did uh how did that happen how did you uh convince him did he need convincing to uh to take on this this role well from the early days uh, we always like the idea um, because the show is is set in the UK and in this a small town of Bristol where I grew up. We always like the idea of a kind of ex- sort of a character that landed in that world that felt exotic, the man who fell to earth. That you wondered yes. who was he. He brought a sort of enigma <laughs> and a um, and a mystery to him. Yeah, no and, one and has an more mystery and enigma than Christopher Walken, right? There you are, right? So um, so he seemed like the number one choice for that, and and so yeah, we made contact with him and. Um, I had to, he doesn't really um he doesn't do the internet or mobile phones so I flew to Connecticut to see Chris and I sort of drove out into the the depths of the his house is kind of in the middle of a forest and I'm sort of thinking is this right it feels like is this who, who am I going to who's going to open the door like is, is, is this is this going to be uh, the Unabomber or is this going to be Chris Walken and um and there he was and he and he welcomed me in and he was you know. Uh, very welcoming and he and he he said uh, the first thing he said to me i can't do a walking impression but the first thing he said to me was um would you like some omelet <laughs> i was like yeah sure i guess so i had sort of had half an omelet and then we spoke and chris has got um is very uh, thoughtful very considered he doesn't he doesn't uh he's quite happy to just let um to sit in silence as he stews over an answer or a question so he would ask me about the character he would ask me about bristol the origin of the show and then he would, and I would give him an answer and he would just muse on it and it would just go silent. And we would just sit there in his house, just <laughs> looking out at this kind of snowy, it was in February, this kind of snowy forest. And then he'd ask another question and then I'd answer again. <laughs> and it would go quiet. And after a while, it was a bit like having a Zoom conversation in person. You were never quite sure if he'd kind of, <laughs> if, he'd, if, he'd, if he was buffering. Um, but um, he, but he, I was froze, there. he froze for a minute. He froze for a minute. And then uh, I must have been there about four hours and, and by about hour four, I was getting weak from hunger. I said, any more of that omelette, Chris? <laughs> and um, and he said, yeah, sure. And I ate a bit more omelette. Anyway, I, I left him to it to sort of stew on it. And the next thing I knew, he said, yeah, I'm up for it. And I did subsequently read an interview. He said that um, when Steve asked for me for a second piece of omelette, I knew I had to work with this guy. <laughs> so um, if you want to work with Chris Walker, never turn down his omelette. Um, he seems like he would be a very fun person to write dialogue for because he has such unusual line readings and approaches was that did you think about that um you know when you were writing for that character and did he surprise you with the way he read any of the lines on the show the only thing really that i that was a that was a guiding principle for um chris's character was that i wanted him to have to sort of use some slightly archaic sort of um almost kind of jazz 
jazz beatnik phrases, yes, you know. Yes. So he, he calls me high pockets, for instance, and <laughs> you know, and he refers to a gun as an undertaker's friend, and you know, just sort of these antiquated things that I because I imagine some reason that this character had like one time hung around maybe like jazz clubs in the sixties or something. I mean that that checks out. Yeah. So um but aside from that, no, I didn't I didn't uh, write for the for the Chris Walken kind of rhythms of speech, partly because um, that's very much just him. That's his kind of, he'll put his punctuation in where he sees fit. So, you know, you can't possibly anticipate how he's going to deliver a line. So, you know, you write it with your, with your, um, your own approach and then he'll just do it his way. And, and what's extraordinary about it, because I, I think that the anxiety you always have when you're working with someone of that caliber and also that vintage is that you're you always hear those horror stories of those people that just sort of show up and kind of phone it in and do sort of one take and then they're i'm one take and i'm done but chris was not like that at all he was very still seemed as enthusiastic about acting as he must have ever been he he'll do multiple takes he'll try something different every time and um the the the, the is his idiosyncratic speech rhythms will be different each time and and so you end up in the editing room with a real kind of interesting variety of flavors some are more funny some are more dramatic and it gives you this collage to work with of sort of um of flavors uh so it's a re- it's really thrilling to work with him to see him sort of to see him uh at work greetings and felicitations hi pockets what's taking chicken uh, it's finger licking chicken good morning ladies can i just say you're both looking beautiful no you can't he can't tell you that you're beautiful we didn't ask him for a verdict on our appearance sorry but i said i got fine little ladies you both right couple of swooners. So I have to ask you, this is kind of a, a spoiler alert for the end of the series, although it doesn't really have anything to do with the plot. Um, so there's a moment at the end uh, that's gotten some attention where, where Christopher Walken's character actually paints over a actual Banksy. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yes. What's the, st- what's the story behind that? Well, Banksy is also from Bristol. Or at least oh, yes. his his graffiti art first started to appear, I believe, in Bristol, and much of it is still there. Um, as to whether he actually is from Bristol, I don't know because I don't know him, and I've still never met him. Um, and that's exactly what Banksy would say, of course. So um, there's no way I can disprove that I'm not Banksy. But yes, let's take would, for the take for argument a, that would be a bombshell. I think, yeah. Let's take it as read that I'm not Banksy. Um, <laughs> but uh, but he is, as I say, he's 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 renowned for for being kind of Bristol based, um, and so. Because the show is set in Bristol, and, and also I should mention that Bristol in the UK is very, um, it's not just Banksy, it's a very graffiti-strewn city. It's kind of renowned for its street art. And so in the show, as you know, they are sort of renovating a building, and part of that is painting over the endless graffiti that has been tagged all over this this um, derelict building. And so it just seemed, we were talking one day, and it seemed amusing to me that what if one of the characters uncovered a Banksy an old Banksy that was on this building and then didn't recognize it for what it was and then was instructed to paint over it by the council. And it just, and that just seemed like a fun idea and amusing <laughs> kind of sort of just a little amusing gag in the show. And then our producer, I think said, well, why, why don't we ask the real Banksy? And we're like, well, that seems mad. And then I went, okay, well, why not? You never know. You know, so, so we managed to sort of find a kind of go between and, I sent him an email. I said, I don't know if you find this as amusing as me, but what if you painted a real-life Banksy and then Christopher Walken painted over it and then it only exists in this TV show? It doesn't have any life beyond it. And, you know, you wait and wait, and then one day an email comes back like, yeah, that sounds fun. Let me know where this building is, you know. And so we sent him the address, and he didn't tell us when he was coming. And, you know, the filming days are 
getting eaten up and there's still no Banksy and we're sort of running out of time at this location. We're like, oh, I, is he going to come or what? And and then one morning we just, you know, I came in early with uh, the sort of set designer and a few other people and there was this Banksy just discreetly hidden away in the corner <laughs> and we none of our security saw him and no one, he must like jump the fence without us knowing and, and did this picture. And um, and so then I went to Chris and his trainer and said, yeah, hey, how do you fancy about, how do you fancy um, painting over a, a, you know, a million dollar stencil graffiti <laughs> this morning and he's like yeah sure yeah he had no problem with it he didn't he had no uh, problem yeah <laughs> but of course and it you, was spun initially as though we had that the, the we had defaced a real banksy that somehow yes. we had you know you negligently had just sort done of discovered one and then and then defaced it yeah that's sort of the 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 uh impression i got from some of the articles out there right that is, which is that's not clearly crazy you yeah. commissioned it and then painted we it commissioned paint. it that's yeah. right um yeah and you only had one take to do it too i guess that was a real sweat. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, it was. It was. It was really terrifying. But yeah, we were very proud to, to get it done. Yeah, well, you pulled it off. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Coming up, Stephen takes us back to the early days of The Office, and shares how he reacted when he heard some American comedy writers wanted to make their own version. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with Ricky Gervais and some other performers and writers from the American version of The Office, including Mindy Kaling, Mike Schur, and Brian Baumgartner, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Stephen Merchant. So I want to, you know, go back to to earlier in your career and, and talk about some of your comedy work as well, um, you know, because this is really a, a podcast that focuses on comedy uh, for the most part. Um, so, you know, going all the way back, how did you first get into the the idea of, of making TV and, and your first show, which ended up being The Office? How did I get into that? Well, I as you mentioned at the very beginning, I was... Um a big fan of John Cleese growing up, who was from, um, I'm from this town called Bristol, and he's from somewhere called Western Supermare, which is a sort of beach town not far from Bristol. And so he was a sort of local guy done good, and and also very tall, as you mentioned. And I, for some reason, found, and also I was a big fan, and I, for some reason I found that quite inspiring. Like, for some reason, it, I don't know why, and it's weird. I don't know where I, this sort of weird arrogance came from, but I was like, well, this guy's quite local, and he made it in comedy. And so maybe I could. And I don't know why I had that self-belief. <laughs> I just 
never lost that self-belief and all the kind of knockbacks I had as a teenager, I never stopped thinking, well, John Cleese did it, which is crazy kind of, I suppose. But I suppose, you know, I guess I was, I was sort of considered quite amusing at school and I did some school plays that were sort of well-received. And I think if you have those early kind of plaudits, oh, Steve's a funny guy, then I guess maybe <laughs> you're, you believe that you are the next John Cleese. And so, and so I... I started doing some stand-up and I had sort of middling success with it. But, And I suppose it was only as I started to do things more professionally and you had those occasions where people didn't find it funny or entertaining or interesting or you were, you know, booed during a stand-up gig. Not booed necessarily, but, you know, you were you were heckled or people didn't laugh. Only then did you realise, maybe I'm not John Cleese. <laughs> maybe this is not as easy as it seems. But, um, but by that point, I was sort of on the road, I suppose. So I just kept doubling down and then... Uh, I met Ricky Gervais, uh, a radio station where we both worked, and we hit it off again, you know, like I mentioned with Elgin, just sort of similar tastes and similar sense of humor and um, similar likes and dislikes. And, you know, um, I think I, for some reason in my mind, had always thought, well, I'd love one day to make a comedy show as great and as brilliant as John Cleese's Faulty Towers, which was still and remains, you know, a kind of, you know, a, a, a huge sort of um, uh, legendary show in the UK. And... Um, so that was always in the back of my mind. And then I met Ricky and, and through sort of, you know, odd circumstances involving a sort of BBC training film, we made a little what turned out to be almost like a demo tape of The Office. And then the next thing you knew, we were making the series and then the show was a slow burn here in the UK. And um, it was it, famously, there was a test audience screening and it scored the lowest <laughs> at the BBC. The, the, actually, no, the only thing that ever scored lower was women's lawn bowls. Uh, which I didn't even know was televised. I don't even know what it is. But um, but yes, The Office was number two in terms of the, the, the lowest audience feedback. But um, slowly here in the UK, it built up a following and um, and became more and more successful. And, and then the American version obviously spun from that and, um, and off we were really. So, you know, it, it was, there was an ambition there certainly to, to, to make a sitcom and to do comedy and be involved with it. But the route I ended up taking was not perhaps the one I had planned. Yeah, I wonder if it scored low because some people actually did think it was a documentary, right? That's uh, that was uh, the reports at the time that that people really um, didn't thought it was real, and which is sort of what you guys were going for, right? Well, that's right. Well, actually, funny enough, I was on a train when the first episode had aired the following day, and because I wasn't in the show at that point, um, no one knew who I was. So I was sat um, opposite two women, and one of them said, "Did you see that documentary last night on the BBC about this <laughs> office? The boss was absolutely hysterical." And her friend said, "Oh no, I think that was a sitcom." And the first woman said, "Oh, one very funny then." <laughs> and her her opinion on it completely changed as soon as she knew it was fake, even though she just said it was hilarious. So. And I think there was that feeling that a lot of people did watch it and say, well, I don't know why this is supposed to be funny. Um, and and you know, I can't argue with them, really. I mean, you know, I, I, <laughs> I do think it's, you know, I wonder if it's because you were doing something so different. You know, you said before you you didn't always want to end on a punchline and you wanted to let it sit in the awkwardness or the real, um, which was something that was really different when you started doing it from what was on TV, right? Well, yeah, you're right. And I think, again, I think because I think we were quite influenced by, we're influenced by films um, like This Is Spinal Tap and um Woody Allen had made some sort of faux documentary films, and and I also I, I this is I don't know if this is of interest or not, but but um, when we were growing up in the UK, Mash obviously was a big show, but Mash when it was shown in England did not have a laugh track. Mash was 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 audience free, and so I would watch that, and I thought it was one of the funniest and yet most desperate 
kind of bleak existential comedies about people sort of laughing in the face of of you know of a fruitless godless universe as a teenager thinking this is really profound and only when i went to the uk the us and i saw it on you know us tv with a laugh track did i think this is insufferable because suddenly <laughs> hawkeye seemed smug whereas yeah, when really i saw him it, just seemed, it. it really did whereas to me he seemed like a guy just sort of having to make jokes through desperation and so again i think things like that were a big influence the, the sort of non-laugh track version of mash the idea of sort of of a sitcom where where people are making jokes sort of slightly out of desperation um and and so yeah so i think perhaps we didn't realize it didn't seem as unique to us because of our influences as perhaps it did to some viewers. People see me and they see the suit and they go, you're not fooling anyone. They know I'm rock and roll through and through. But uh, you know that old thing, live fast, die young. Not my way. Live fast, sure, live too bloody fast sometimes. But uh, die young, die old. That's the way I, not orthodox, you know. I don't live by the rules. You know, obviously it has had, the, the style was relatively new when you were doing it, but has had this huge impact on uh, TV comedy, um, you know, including up to now. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this new show, Abbott Elementary, uh, that's very popular, um, you know, here in the U.S. Um, that's a, a sitcom that, that is definitely influenced by The Office. And I think that, you know, the creator, Quinta Brunson, has talked about that. Right. No, I haven't seen it. It's, it's really, really good. Um, have you noticed that? Have you seen how... TV comedy has really changed since The Office. Well, it's funny. I did a guest spot on Modern Family, and, um, and yeah, one that's of the... another that's another one that was, that was certainly influenced by it. Right? Well, I think it's a great show. I really enjoyed the show. And I was very happy to be part of it. I really love those that, that cast and the show and the writers. It's a real pleasure. But I was there, and and one of the um, script supervisors said to me, um, "Hey, well, you know, the unique thing about our show is it, it's like a it's like a fake documentary." <laughs> and she didn't know who I was. And I was like, "Oh, no, good, oh, good interesting, great. yeah." But. Um, but I think it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's, it's almost... I remember when we first developed the American version, one of the questions we had for Greg Daniels as he was developing it was, how is this going to run and run as a documentary? I mean, you know, yeah, it's just it crazy, sense, right? It doesn't yeah. make sense that it's going to be on for years and is it has it ever been aired and have the people on the show become well-known? Like, how... And Greg had a very good point, which was that at some point the, the style will just become the the sort of style of the show and people will stop questioning don't the, think about it. the documentariness of it. And, and I think that's probably what's happened with those other shows as well is I think it's just become a kind of format now, hasn't it? It's just a style along with other styles. And no, no one, one was really, one, yeah, no one was wondering about when the modern family documentary was coming out. That's right. That's right. And whereas, you know, when we were doing ours, Ricky and I were very obsessed about trying to remain as true to the documentary conventions and rules as far as we could. So, we became obsessed about what people would say in front of the camera. And uh, if they were saying things that they would never say in front of a TV audience, they had to be being spied on through a window or long lens camera. And we got ourselves in all kinds of knots, you know, so we never really went home with the characters and we never saw behind the curtain as it were. Um, whereas, you know, the, the, the American office and other shows, they quickly abandoned that rule, went home with the characters and all kinds of, you know, broke all kinds of rules. And no one cares. No, people, no, like yeah. Greg said, <laughs> people just accept it. Yeah. Uh, we've had a lot of people on this podcast over the years who either were involved with the American office or auditioned for the American office. And the, the story that I've heard over and over again is when the news sort of st first started coming out that there was going to be an American version, everyone who loved the British version thought, oh, that's a terrible idea. That's not going to work. That's, you know, 
why would why would anyone want to do that? Um, so I was curious from your perspective, you know, what you thought when this idea first came up. Did you think it was a good idea? Did you think it was going to work? Well, here's my one um, my one stroke of genius, I think, which is that as something of a kind of comedy boffin, particularly when I was growing up, and going back to our old friend John Cleese again, I was aware that John Cleese's Faulty Towers had they had attempted to remake it several times in, in America, and a number of other British shows had also tried and failed. And one of the things I don't think this is true of Cleese, but certainly with the other ones, one of the flaws seemed to be that often the original British creators had tried to do the U.S. adaptation, and that and that that hadn't worked because I think they had tried too closely to replicate their uh, British version, and also. In the end, you don't quite know the ins and outs of the American sensibility in the way that an American writer does. And so I did say to Ricky early on, I think the only way this will work is if we don't try to do it ourselves. Um, and so, so I think our, our kind of, our involvement, if you like, or our, the thing that I think we've brought to it is, is, is helping find Greg and, and, you know, meeting with lots of people and, and deciding Greg was the man for the job. And, and obviously we were proven right. Um, and leaving him in a sense to do it. And we helped where we could and we gave as much thought and feedback on, on why we chose particular characters we chose and the flaws of the documentary style and all these things. We gave him sort of offloaded all this information, but then tried not to, to meddle. And, and I think the more they got away from the British, version i think in a sense that the more the u.s version flew so um certainly i never anticipated it to succeed to the to the, the level it had but i knew that the only chance it would have is if is if someone american and smart like greg took the reins um you did sort of get involved a little bit more along the way um i know you you wrote an episode you directed an episode um what was that like to kind of come into this existing show that was sort of your show but but wasn't and and really uh get involved in it more closely later well, the directing was was a real a real highlight for me because I, whenever I was in LA, I would visit the set and the writers' room. And you got to remember that in the UK, we're very much a cottage industry. We don't have the resources on the whole to have large writers' rooms. So most shows, most comedy sitcoms, tend to be written by one or two people. And in the, in our case, it was me and Ricky Gervais. And so I was not used to this kind of twelve or fourteen brilliant often Harvard-educated people all throwing jokes around a room. So I would go there and I would just sort of sit in awe just as a kid in a candy store. Just It was so much fun just to be in that environment and just to, to, to hear the creativity, to be able to sort of throw in a thought here and there. And because you didn't really, you know, you weren't like the novice writer who was just desperate to make a good impression. You were like, hey, I'm the conquering hero from England, remember? I'm kind of your boss. So I would just, <laughs> you know, I could swagger in. And be there for half a day. But I loved being there and I loved that atmosphere. And so I was very excited to direct an episode. And we went there and, and spent some time with the writers. And and I got kind of slightly addicted to that sort of American production process, really, of the writing room and the the set is just down there. And they're sort of writing and then they're filming it, you know, only moments later. And, and I don't know, there's, there's a kind of, uh, there's a factory to it that's really exciting to be part of and very immediate. Um, whereas for me and Ricky, it would, you know, sort of months and months sitting alone in a room and then very eventually you'd get the actors into a rehearsal room and it's just a very slow process whereas this felt very immediate and sort of energized and so I was very kind of adrenalized by that and I love that I love being part of that sort of American writing environment yeah and then actually and then directing um and getting to you know be on set and do that what what was that aspect like well again I think I became I went back to my old sins of becoming obsessed with the documentary of it again. Oh really? <laughs> and I was like, well hang on, where would the camera be there? It makes sense. Why is this and what the how are we gonna find that? And everyone, I think people were just looking at me like, no one cares. Yeah. <laughs> but um but it was a joy because I got, you know, I mean, I think again that I mean our, our cast in the UK were absolutely terrific, but you know, equally 
you know, people like Steve Carell and John Krasinski and all of that cast are just so effortlessly talented that, you know, you just really, you really um, just sort of wind them up and watch them go, really. You know, you don't have to, there isn't much directing involved. Um, it's just, it's just sort of sitting there and trying not to laugh. What is your name, sir? I am Bill Butlicker. Really, that's your real name? How dare you? My family built this country, by the way. Be respectful, Dwight, please. Uh, yes, Michael. Could you hold on one second? That's my other line. What? No, but I... Hello? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just on the phone with this stupid salesman. He's so dumb. Probably just gonna keep him on the line forever and not buy anything. <laughs> okay. It's up to you to change his mind. Sorry, that was a family emergency. Oh, no, what's wrong? You know what? That's private. Boundaries, Dwight, come I'm, on. I'm sorry, Mr. Butlicker. As I was saying, <sighs> we're having a limited... Speak up a little bit louder. I'm hard of hearing. He's hard if he's an old man. Okay, as I was saying, right now, yeah, we are having... talk louder. Okay, our prices have never been lower. Son, you have to talk louder. Never been lower. Louder, but... son! Butlicker, our prices have never been lower! Stop it. The big debate about the show, or one of them in recent years, is this question of sort of would audiences tolerate a character like David Brent or Michael Scott now, given how politically incorrect and and crass they can be and sort of unaware? Um, and I've talked about this, uh, you know, with Mike Schur a bit. Um, and I, I'm curious to get your perspective on that, um, because I think there is something I mean, from my perspective, there's, you know, the way it was handled, you sort of knew that he was being politically incorrect. And that helps. It's not like, the show was saying, oh, look at how great this guy is when he says these things. Um, but how do you think about that? Well, I think you're right in the sense that certainly when we did our version and um, we started, I'm trying to think we must have developed that in the early, early 2001 or something, early yeah, 2000s. Yeah, it came out in 2001, the, the right. first season, yeah. Um, that um, at the time, there was a lot of conversation about, as you say, political correctness. Like that was a real buzzword in the sort of discourse here in the UK and you know and about offices um offering training my I have some friends who were um you know uh, jobbing actors at the time and they and I remember some of them would go off and they had to do a, a sort of a teaching um firemen not to be sexist through drama and so it was clearly something that was sort of in the air and and and, and in um workplace environments you know there were lots of seminars about that sort of thing and so it so the idea of of what could could and couldn't be said was already a conversation. And so our show was a comment on that and about someone who is trying to adapt to this new reality and isn't fundamentally able to. There's a juxtaposition between his innate sensibilities and what he wants to be and how he wants to perceive himself or how he wants to be perceived. Um, so that was already back baked into the DNA of the show. It wasn't like we just sort of, you know, went off and brazenly gave him outrageous things to say without giving it consideration. It was, it was in a sense, a satire on that kind of person. Um, I just suppose I think the difference now is that even to deal with some of those subjects within a comedy, um, even if you're trying to do it from a, from a satirical place or from an observational place, seems to be more dangerous, if you like. It's somehow more sensitive now to go into any, even, even the territory that we explored, um, even if you're, as I, as I say, coming from the right place. And I think that's the big difference now, is whether commissioners or audiences would accept that as soon as you go into, if you like, you know, mischievous, controversial areas, that, that whether they'll come with you on that journey. Um, or whether there will be too many people that will just be immediately, you know, scared or alarmed or offended at the very mention of a word or a subject. 
that I don't know. That that's that what that's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, Ricky Gervais has always been very outspoken on these issues and free speech and being able to say whatever you want to say. Uh, do you feel like you two were always on the same page about those things, or were there disagreements about? sort of how far to push things ever in, on any of the shows that you did? I've always said that I feel Ricky has a little bit more of a punk rock sensibility than I do. I think he's sort of a little bit more, he's braver in a sense and a little bit more willing to kind of, you know, to sort of to, to kick at the system than, than I am. I think I'm I'm sort of more keen to uh, to be, I, you know, I'd like to be let into the establishment, please, whereas Ricky's happier <laughs> to give the finger to the establishment, you know. I agree with him in the sense that I don't think there should be any limits to free speech, but I do feel, at least from my perspective creatively, that I, I need to be able to sort of justify the territory that, that I go into or that we go into. And so there were probably occasions where where we policed ourselves, but I don't know that it always fell to me. I think it would it would swing back and forth, really. I think, you know, we, we made sure there were no rules in the writing room, and sometimes we would come up with an idea that was hysterical to us and then both arrive at the thought that that was probably too much or or it couldn't be justified or whatever. Um, so, so, but at the end, we were, we, we were not trying to be irresponsible with, with that show. You know, we, 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 we felt like we were trying to make a, a point, it, 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 you know, a small, a small point. Um, so, yeah. So I don't, I don't remember us ever kind of getting into an argument about that. Just, we just cannot say that, you know, and us arguing, I think it was always quite clear to us if it could go in or not. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are a lot of uh, rumors out there of a, a falling out between the two of you. Maybe because you haven't, you know, created a show in a few years. Um, is there is there any truth to that? Do you do you still get along well, or, or are you aware of that? I'm aware of that, but no, I, I, I get on perfectly well with Ricky. I, I just um, I think we just started doing slightly different projects. I started doing stand up, or I returned to stand up after a long time, and that led to my show Hello Ladies, which I ended up developing in the US with uh, two guys that I'd met in that writer's room in the office. And, uh, you know, Ricky was doing, he had a couple of other projects, uh, one of which was called Derek, which um, he was sort of doing at the same time I was doing Hello Ladies, I think, or thereabouts, or we were in development at different times. And so we just sort of got out of sync, really. And, and you know, it's just, I've had enormous... Uh, success and fun in working with Ricky, but I was starting to enjoy working with different people and, and different collaborators and, and finding sort of new territory that, that I don't think would necessarily have appealed to Ricky. Um, and so we just sort of drifted apart creatively really, but, um, but we certainly never had any big, you know, falling out or big argument or anything like that. Yeah. There was a, a tweet that you sent that appeared to be some sort of swipe at Afterlife, uh, his show, which everyone was well, pointing to. That's that's a very unfortunate uh, instance because I've never seen Afterlife. <laughs> I um, And I don't mean that because I, Rick and I used to joke that we never watched each other's stuff, you know, because we just never paid attention to it. Um, even when, you know, we were in the midst of things yeah. because it's quite, it's quite good. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, funny enough, that was, uh, I had been watching minority report and, um, my friend who's a film critic had put out, um, a, a thing about, um, movie cliches that you like. And I'd been watching minority report and in minority report, there's the kind of watching, watching videos of your dead child. Um, and, uh, and so I mentioned that as a as a sort of jokey cliche that I like, and everyone and assumed. Right? Everyone assumed, I guess that that I guess that's that happens in Ricky's show. And so they assumed that that was a that was a strange dig at Ricky. <laughs> yeah, it seemed strange to me. Yeah, but I mean, why on earth I would suddenly arbitrarily decide to have a sort of 
esoteric jab at Ricky's. I don't know why. I mean, but again, what's funny about those things is you can, even now when I give you my explanation, you, there's probably part of you yeah. that doesn't believe me, and I'm sure there's listeners who don't. And so it's impossible... I can't, there's no way I can combat your, your assumptions, you know? And so, um, you know, it is what it is really, but, uh, no, certainly if I was going to, if I, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've, I've said, uh, jokes at Ricky's expense, you know, throughout my career, you know? Um, so why I would suddenly choose this like slightly odd left field way of having a dig at Ricky. I don't know. Strange. I don't know what part of me has suggested to people that that's how I operate. Um, so you mentioned hello ladies, uh, your uh, HBO show, which I really loved. And I feel like it's kind of, underappreciated and uh and you know maybe not talked about as much as it should be um and that was your first that was sort of your first big solo thing that you did on tv without ricky right yeah yeah and i i'm very proud of that show i think it's it's i i do think it's a bit of an underrated gem i i mean i know i might i would say that but um yeah, you're a little biased but i am biased but i really <laughs> feel like there's some really great stuff in that show and um and uh again working with lee and gene who you know who were writers from the office we had an absolute ball doing it and and again, I had a little sort of writer's room and I was, you know, again, I was able to enjoy that kind of the, yeah. the process yes, you, of the American. The, yeah, the American model more. On that's that right. One. That's right. And um, so I, yeah, I really, uh, I really am very proud of that show. And um, as you can see from this poster behind me and um, yeah, and you know, and it sits there and, and every day I get a tweet that someone's just discovered it for the first time, which is one of the great things I think about living in this kind of digital age is that sort of nothing disappears it's all out there uh, i think what they call it the long tail you know that sort of 20 years down the road someone can discover things and um uh so um yeah so i love the fact that people keep on unearthing it hello ladies my name is Stuart. with me my best mate wade right there hi wayne wade wade, wade. Yeah. yeah as in roe versus wade mm-hmm. uh, it's a famous case about a woman's right to they know what it is <laughs> no need to bring up abortion uh, until we need to my wife just asked for a separation after 11 years. Getting a bit, I'm just, oh, it's getting a bit gloomy again straight away. Maybe head to the bar. Get yeah. some drinks. No, 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 that's Please, okay. ladies, it's really pleasure. Get to the bar, sir. Off he goes, one of the good guys. Unfortunately, he's forgotten how to talk to beautiful women. Uh, I, however, have not. Good evening. <laughs> um, where are you guys from? From here. Can't do anything with that. What about yourself? Seattle. Seattle. I love Seattle. You spent time there. Never been. Never been. I feel like there's this uh, theme of of humiliation that runs through your work, and especially present in that show and that character. Um, is that something that you that you think about a lot in terms of uh, what's funny about it? Someone once said to me in an interview, "Do you think the reason you went into comedy is to control when people laugh at you?" Yeah, that's a common uh, uh, perception. Yeah, yeah. and. Um... And there might be some truth in that. I, I mean, I was very tall, you know, as you mentioned, even from a very young age, and so probably very self-conscious. And I feel like over time, I've embarrassed myself in a number of humiliating ways, in very public ways. Um, and so I think I'm always, I, there's an anxiety about social embarrassment that uh, that bled into a show like Hello Ladies, and you can see it in the office, and you can see it in, in different forms of my work. Um and I don't know if that's a particularly British thing or just a particularly me thing, but um, there is something about being able to laugh, you know, at at your own misfortune before before it happens. That seems kind of cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you obviously have this show, uh, The Outlaws, out now. I know you're also, um, you know, doing some other acting stuff. But what is uh, what's the next thing that you want to do? Is there something on the horizon that you're excited about? Well, one of the good things. The, one of the only good things that came out of um, lockdown and, and the sort of COVID lockdown for us was that we had just begun to shoot the outlaws and then we had to shut down after 10 days. 
and we went into that first lockdown a couple of years ago. And um, I said to the BBC and Amazon, you know, can we write a second series while we're in lockdown? And they sort of rather surprisingly said yes. And so that's what we did. That's exciting. Well, so what it meant was when we resumed filming, we ended up shooting two seasons back to back. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I'm just finishing editing series two as we speak, cool. and that will that will air here in the UK soon, and then in in the US uh, later this year. So, um, so yeah, we've actually got two seasons um, already in the can, which I'm very pleased about because it meant that I could retrofit some some story points in series one to sort of tee us up for a series two. So, so that will come along, and then um, and then uh, we may do more outlaws, and um, I. I've, I mean, I've written a more straight-ahead thriller, which I'm just tinkering with at the moment, which which I'm enjoying, um, which is more like a movie. And I might go back to stand-up, which I haven't done for a long time. So, um, yeah, so I feel like, you know, keeping busy. Uh, so what I want to do now is our segment called The First Laugh. Um, it's how we end the show, and I'm going to ask you a, a series of questions about some firsts in your life and career uh, in, about comedy. Um, starting with... Do you remember the first piece of comedy that really made you laugh hard as a kid, something you, you really felt connected to? I, I think it probably would have been Laurel and Hardy. I was um, very enamored of them from a young age. My dad would show me those old Laurel and Hardy shorts. And um, yes, even quite young, I was just initially just amused by the slapstick of it and just the, the sort of joyous physicality of them. Um, and over time, and even as I got slightly older into my early teens, I think I began to appreciate the kind of characterization and sort of Oliver Hardy as that slightly pompous, uh, sort of Southern gent, you know, and, and the way that he would take off his bowler hat and kind of swoop it into his arm as he would f- and ring a doorbell with a real finger flourish and all these little <laughs> bits of business that were so, that were so elegant and refined. And, and I wondered where they, how they developed those, you know, cause they didn't, must, they must, they must've come from somewhere. And, um, so I think they were they were still they were a big formative influence on on me and also I think on Ricky because you know as you'll see in the office all those times where Martin Freeman or subsequently John Krasinski would look into the lens as if uh, as if to say you know are you getting this that's all that's pure Oliver Hardy from from his movies yeah and then what about your first time actually performing stand up comedy on stage uh, where were you how did it go what was your uh, experience like. Well, I'd tried several times to do it at university, and for whatever reason, it never quite worked out. Either the gig was cancelled, or I lost my nerve, or whatever. And then, eventually, just after university, I um, I finally got a five-minute slot at a comedy club in my hometown, and my parents drove me there, but I wouldn't let them come in, because I was too anxious about having anyone <laughs> that knew me in, in the audience. At the time, I think I was probably very influenced by um, by people like Eddie Izzard, so it was quite a sort of sort of slightly surreal stream of consciousness. And I remember that first gig going triumphantly well and thinking, I'm actually crushing this. I'm a natural at this. And then the second gig died on its ass. And and it was like that for quite a while, you know, and I had a very kind of hate, love-hate relationship with stand-up for a long time. But um but over time, you know, you you know you figure it out. But uh but yes, I remember that the comedy box in Bristol, that was the first gig, five minutes. And as I say, it went well. Um and I did remember I do remember coming off thinking, I was right. I'm brilliant. Uh, I often ask comedians and actors about their most memorable audition story. Uh, It occurred to me that you've probably been on the other side of the table more often in auditions. Um, So I'm wondering if you have any funny memories from actually auditioning people. Well, I remember a guy came in for the second series of The Office and um, he was in for like a small role and he... um, he sort of did it a few times. We were like, okay, thanks. And, uh, you know, thanks very much. And he was on his way out. And he went, guys, sorry, can I just uh, can I just try something? They were like, okay, yeah, great. So he turns his back 
and he turns back and he's wearing like sort of comedy googly glasses <laughs> and then does the scene wearing these but the scene didn't invite that the scene wasn't about <laughs> comedy googly glasses there was no mention of comedy googly. like he just thought this will be funny and i remember thinking have you seen our show? Yeah, definitely Like the not. only time anyone would wear a comedy googly glasses is because we're saying that's not funny. Yeah. Oh and you're God. saying it. And I remember just, we were both sort of slightly dumbstruck, just, all right, well, <laughs> thanks for coming in. That's hilarious. When when Ricky was on this podcast, we talked about uh, the about extras and all of the you know incredible cameos that you guys had. We talked about David Bowie uh, specifically. Do you have a memory from any of the uh, celebrities who appeared on that show over the years? Well, there was one where I was in a scene with Robert De Niro. Oh, wow, and yeah. And the whole premise of that was that, that Ricky's character was trying to get a meeting with Robert De Niro. And as Ricky's agent, I Ricky couldn't go, there, couldn't, couldn't go to the meeting, so I ended up going in his place. And we filmed that in a hotel in New York, and we only had Robert for an hour. <laughs> and um, I don't know, this is a very weird tangential thing, but I, I, do you remember a band from the 80s called Bananarama? They Vaguely, were a girl yes. group, and yeah. they had a number of hits, one of which was called Robert De Niro's Waiting. Um, and strangely, one of the girls in Bananarama is a third cousin of mine, who I've never <laughs> met, but she was at Bridesmaid at my mum's wedding and things. So um, so uh, I uh, I was sat there with Robert De Niro, and the whole idea is that I'm trying to keep him entertained, waiting for Ricky's character to show up. And at one point, I just started singing this song, Robert De Niro's Waiting. Robert De Niro's <laughs> Waiting, talking Italian. <laughs> uh, I said, "Have you heard that song?" And he sort of went, "No." I was like, oh. And and I was for some reason there was a, that was that it was that moment where so many weird things of life came together. Do you know what I mean? Like you're this girl who was in a band in the eighties that that were a huge success in the UK, who was related to my mum, and then and then I'm in a scene with Robert De Niro, and I'm singing a song that somehow relates me back to my parents and my mum and the <laughs> past, and and then and. It was just one of those strange occasions that, and then we never put it in the show and it's lost to the mist of time. And it's like, it's one little memory I have that for some reason, maybe I'm the only person who ever sang it to him. Do you have a story or a memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? Well, that's probably the uh, the, the infamous incident at the Sarah Silverman party, which you may or may not be aware of. Oh, yes. I have heard about this, but for our listeners, uh, they might be interested to know. Yeah. So I... Uh, when I was first spending time in LA was invited by a friend to attend a, a party thrown by Sarah Silverman who throws these parties, I think annually or certainly did for a long time. And the sort of great and good of the comedy fraternity are there. And I was not invited. I just went with this friend and uh, Sarah was very welcoming and, and very nice. And I'm sort of there for a little while. And someone offered me some, um, uh, like a, a pot chocks some pot chocolate. Sounds um, about right. Know, yeah. Yeah. With, you know, obviously with marijuana being legal in the U S and um or in LA I should say and um and I thought well I, I guess yeah I guess when in Rome like I'm not a big drug user but I'm <laughs> sure I'll eat a square of this and I ate it and um and very quickly I felt like I had fallen inside my own body <laughs> and I was like clink I was like peeking out through my own eyes barely able to function just completely mushed I mean just in a, and I remember very briefly meeting Gary Shandling who I was a huge fan of, and but having no no coherent thing to say to him, and he just drifted away, looking confused. And I had to lie down for a while, but but in the party. But obviously, again, as you say, being six foot seven, just take up like two couches, like a giant anaconda, just in the way. 
So then I sort of stagger into the bathroom and I look at myself in the mirror for a while. And it turns out when you're very stoned, you shouldn't look at yourself in the mirror. Yeah, that's it, a, yeah. everybody falling. learns that the hard way. Yeah. yeah. And so eventually I thought I'll get some air. So I walked out back into the party and I aimed for this large window, um, open, well, I thought it was an open door. And the next thing I knew, I was walking through an eight foot plate glass window. I mean, <laughs> smashing through it to the point where it entirely shattered around me. And I found myself looking back into the party. The music had stopped like in a Wild West movie. The piano player had stopped. Everyone was looking back. I, just glass was falling around me, like a sort of Wiley Eye Coyote cartoon. Oh, God. I remember the first face I saw was Jeff Ross, the Roastmaster General. And I thought, and Jeff Ross uh -oh, just looked yeah. ashen face. And I thought, <laughs> if Jeff Ross is not ready to make a quip about my, at my expense here, then I'm in trouble. <laughs> and Jeff came over and was like, are you okay, buddy? And, um, I had sort of a few cuts and scrapes, but was miraculously generally unhurt. And then the next, the, the rest of it is just sort of in kind of snatches. It's like, then I'm in the lobby waiting for an Uber. And I remember two people were entering the party and they walked past me and they said, hey, did you hear that some asshole just walked through a window <laughs> and kind of wandered off? And then I'm at home sort of bandaging my hand and now I'm passed out. And then I wake up the next morning and I'm thinking, oh God, it's, it, I, I, all I was aware of with Americans was that they were very litigious. I was assuming that Sarah Silverman was going to sue gonna, me. Yeah, for breaking her So I, I sent her an email via a friend saying, uh, hey, great party last night. Don't know if you noticed, but I walked through a window. <laughs> and um, she was very sweet about it and said, don't worry and, and everything else. But, um, but uh, that is one of those things which at the time was horrific, but which now, in retrospect, I can laugh about. But also, as you mentioned before about where those comedy scenes of social anxiety come from in Hello Ladies and other things. Well, there you are. There's a good example right there. That's it. Yeah. It's almost too dark to put in a show. You, you it know. is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so finally, I like to ask comedians about uh, what's making them laugh right now. So what's the what's the last piece of comedy that, that really made you laugh? Um, could be something you saw on TV or stand-up or, or anything that you could think of that you want to shout out. What have I enjoyed? Um, it's funny because I don't watch a lot of comedy Partly, like I said before, because I think my go-tos are sort of thrillers and, and things like that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, what have I been watching? Um, I very much enjoyed that show. I can't even remember the name of that show or the guy who's in it, but that very unusual Netflix comedy with that sort of very funny esoteric... The, the, the sketch show? Uh, yeah. I think, you, I think you should leave. I think you should leave. That Tim, I Tim Robinson, was, yeah. was very, very funny and very yeah, he's unique. Yeah, really, that really was, was very um, entertaining. And and again, like, you know, he wasn't afraid to to, to sit in awkward moments or <laughs> let Definitely. scenes play out way longer than they should. So I, that was very, very entertaining. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that well, that one's terrific if people haven't seen that. Yeah, that was great. Um, well, Stephen, thank you so much for doing this. It was so much fun to talk with you. Um, and The Outlaws is fantastic. And I think everyone should check it out. I thank you so much for having me. It was really real fun to talk to you. All right. I want to thank Stephen Merchant again for being my guest on this week's show. All six episodes of The Outlaws are streaming now on Amazon Prime Video, and I definitely recommend you check those out if you haven't already. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. 
Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.